even Christians themselves, had to make sense of the fall of Rome. Christians at the time had to think through this. Uh, Jerome, the translator of the Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate, he captures the fear of this time well. He said, the city which had taken the world was itself taken. Augustine, another Christian, was so impacted by this time that it led him to think through all of this by writing a big, long book. That's not how I think through things, but good for Augustine. The book's called The City of God Against the Pagans. In his book, Augustine said that the world boils down to two cities. Two cities, the whole world. The city of God and the city of man. He describes it this way. Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly by love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter glories in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greater glory of the other is the glory of God. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. The whole world boiling down to two cities, defined and fueled by two different loves, and only one of those cities will last. So what were Christians to do in that time in 410 who looked at the world around them and saw nothing but disordered chaos? Well, they were to move their residence to the city that will last. In Isaiah chapters 24 to 27, Isaiah writes to a people who see the chaos of the world and ask, what's going to come of it and what's going to come of us? Isaiah answers by telling what the end of the story, the whole story of history will bring. That's his answer. Today, we're going to see what knowing the end of the whole story, the difference that knowing that makes in our lives right now. If we could summarize the passage that Isaiah wants to get across to his people in these chapters, it's this. There is more to the story than the world that seems chaotic and out of control. There is more to the story. There is coming a glorious day when God will quiet the chaos, save his people, and prove he reigns. When God will quiet the chaos, save his people, and prove he reigns. Now we remember that Isaiah is a prophetic book, which means that this is essentially God's commentary on the world in which Isaiah lives. It comes in a, a certain context. So God's thoughts about what's going on in the world, and we remember that Isaiah is mainly writing to the southern kingdom of what was once unified Israel. This is called Judah. And he's writing during a time in Judah's life that this kingdom almost recaptured the golden age they once had. Economic boom. But during this time, they were blind to a lot of their own sins. And during this time, threats from surrounding nations began to grow stronger. So God comments on the times in which they live in a prophetic book. We hear in a prophetic book God's thoughts about how people are living during this time, especially his own people and how they are living. And so the first half of the book of Isaiah mainly contains warnings and judgments about what a life of rebellion will bring, a life without God as our true king. And today we get to see what the ultimate outcome of a life without the king will bring, the ultimate outcome of that. So as we've seen so far in Isaiah, just keeping the context of the book in mind, even though the predominant tone in the first half of the book is one of warning and judgments, 
We've seen over the last couple of weeks that there have been glimmers of light just shot throughout this first half of the book. Many of those glimmers of light surrounding around one particular character, God's anointed, the Messiah. And that, that pattern is going to continue throughout the book of Isaiah. So we remember last week, God showed Judah the false hopes of the world around them. He looks at all the nations surrounding Judah and reminds them where their true hope lies. In God. In himself. And today, friends, he essentially does the same thing, preaches the same message, but he does so by looking at the end of the story, where their true hope lies. Figure that out by looking at the end of the story. So take a Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. You'll find it on page 585 in the Pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 24. Now, as you're turning there, we're going to see the general layout of the passage to start, and we're going to consider what Isaiah wants his readers to take away from it as a whole. So I pray that this approach through longer Old Testament books is helpful uh, so we can appreciate the details better. Uh, we can miss the big picture if we focus on the details first, and then the details become really hard. In other words, missing the forest for the trees. Uh, so, God's going to lay out the main action of what's to come in the future in chapter 24. What's going to happen at the end of the story? It's summed up very well at the end of the chapter. You'll see starting in verse 21. It says, On that day the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, they will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. That is the end of the story. Now, what does this end, what does this outcome mean for God's people? Now, that's really what the rest of this passage deals with, chapters 25, uh, 26, and 27. What this, what this outcome means for God's people, it means that God will silence the earth that rages. It means God will give joy to his people. And so we see again, like Augustine noticed, two different peoples with two different tunes that in the end all come under a sovereign ruling king, the God of the universe. So knowing the lay of the land, this is the end of the whole story. And what that means for us, what that means for people, that's kind of the general gist of these chapters. Go forward just with a little bit more confidence. Since this passage deals with the end of the story, we're going to organize our time around the difference that knowing certain details about the end of the story makes in our lives right now. What difference this makes in our lives right now. Knowing the ultimate end of chapter 24, verse 23, that the Lord reigns in glory on the earth. Knowing that, we can have perspective, joy, Patience, PJP, perspective, joy, patience. First perspective. There's a new phrase that's caught on the last few years in the world of book and movie reviews. You'll see it in big, bold, red print. Usually at the very beginning of the review, it will say, spoiler alert. What the author of said review is alerting his readers to is that he is about to give away the end of the story, which for many will spoil the experience of reading or watching the story. So they may not want to read the review. This whole section, chapters 24 to 27, that works kind of in the opposite way. Knowing the end of this story doesn't spoil the experience. It actually gives us the proper perspective during the experience as we still live on the earth. Knowing the end of the story is important. So right from the very beginning of this passage, 24 verse 1, we get a spoiler about the end. 
Read with me there, chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. It says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. From the very start of this passage, God talks about the end. And words about the end shape our perspective now. And one way it shapes our perspective now is we see, we have the perspective that all of life around us is not spiraling out of control. It is working toward a certain end. It is under the direction of a ruling, sovereign God. And the very opening verses of chapter 24, this is the end that this God is bringing. It's certain. There is no getting out of it. There is no stopping it. For any of us, look at how it describes people, no matter your social achievements, no matter your family pedigree or earthly status. This end will come. There is a direction all of history is heading. So continuing in the chapter, we read more just of the impossibility and inescapability of this end to the story. Verse 18 of chapter 24 says, He who flees the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, cannot run from it. This end is certain. This end is not a relativistic truth. This end to the story is not true just if you believe it's true. It's not true for you, but not true for me. No, this is either true or it's not true. There's no in-between. So this, the words about the end should shape our perspective that history is under the direction of a good, powerful God who is bringing about a certain end to the story. So words about the end shape our perspective. They shape our perspective on how to explain the world right now. How to explain the world right now. Look again at chapter 24. Find how God describes the world at large. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 and following says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. Perspective on why the earth is the way that it is. This is what words about the end bring us. So we ask, why is the world the way that it is? Certainly we say the world is not as bad as it could be. This is because of God's common grace in restraining evil. But you know, just talk. You could talk to any person. Just to be honest. Talk to any person and ask him or her, is the world as it should be? Is the world as it should be? It, it's... Is the world of death and disease and hurt and corruption and crime and hatred and violence and neglect and selfishness and abuse and crying? Is that how it should be? We talk about an inroad, just as a sidebar, an inroad to evangelism of speaking with people who may have a hard time seeing their own sin, but certainly they can look at the world around them and see that things are not how they should be, that something has gone wrong. But once we recognize that, though, it's not enough just to recognize that. That's fa fairly easy to recognize. The next question we have to ask after we've recognized that the world is not as it should be, we have to ask why. Why is the world the way it is? So these words about the end give us the answer. That the world is under a curse. 
It's a curse that's been brought about because of its inhabitants. In other words, because of us. Because we, the first time we went away from our creator, that brought the curse, that brought all of the pain of this world. So once you asked that person in the evangelistic conversation, why the wor- is the world as it should be? And then you ask that person why. And ask them if they, if we have in some way contributed to the world not being as it should be. Have we contributed to that in some way? You may have heard the story of G.K. Chesterton uh, way back in the day, a kind of old dead Christian, uh, but a, his, news, his local newspaper asked its readers the question, what explains, or what, what is the explanation? Who is at fault for all the problems of the world? You can imagine all the different kinds of answers that they get. Uh, Republicans are, Democrats are, you know, terrorists are. Well, G.K. Chesterton wrote back two words. I am. I am. Who's at fault for the biggest problems of the world? Of course, he doesn't mean every single problem in all the scope of the world, but it is to communicate that he himself, that each one of us, has contributed to the world not being as it should be, not lived as God called us to live. So words about the end this curse on the world, helps give, shape our perspective on why the world is as it is right now. But just at, to look at these verses a little bit closer, Isaiah, in this chapter 24, he calls the world a city several times, including verse 10. Now, to explain why the world is the way that it is, it's helpful not just to know the future, it's also helpful to know the past. You see, a city is more than a collection of buildings. It's actually a way of life. All the way back in Genesis 4, which we read earlier, you see, a Cain was the first one to set up the city. Cain just murdered his brother, become a fugitive, a wanderer, and now departs from the Lord and sets up a city as a place where he could find belonging and significance. So as one commentator says, The city was Cain's way of remaking the world in his own way. It was a way for Cain to live independently from God, living on his own terms, denying the curse that life away from God brings. So we get the right perspective on what our world truly is, And in chapter 24, just one more way this shapes our perspective is words about the end give us perspective of where the world is really going, where the world's really going. This joy, this chaos that we see in the world will come to an end. Look at chapter 24, verse 7. It says, the wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilance has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. Words about the end make clear about what the world really is and what it will be found out to be the end will find out that the world is empty. It's empty. In verse 10, look at there. In verse 10, God describes the world as a wasted city. 
The, the word wasted there literally means without form. Without form. That may ring some bells in you if, if you know your Bible a little bit. All the way back to Genesis 1 verse 2 where it says the world was without form and void. So this city, the, the world that's set up as life independent from God will be shown in that day to be without shape, without meaning, without purpose. The city where we refuse God and set up our own values, our own definitions, our own boundaries. This city may be presented to us in many ways that are attractive, be very appealing. This city may be presented to us in many ways that are rational and eloquent so that it seems reasonable to live in this city. But friends, remember the end. It will amount to nothing. The world that removes God and puts itself in his place will discover that life apart from the God of life is no life at all. The image Isaiah uses in verses 7 to 10, just glean those verses again, verses 7 to 10, it's like he's describing a Mardi Gras that's been shut down. It's like a Mardi Gras that's been shut down. It's not because God is joyless and a party pooper. We'll see that it's actually the contrary in the next chapter. This party's been shut down because people discover that life and meaning apart from God is all a sham. You can keep up the charade for so long, but sooner or later the wine will run out. The words about the end shape our perspective now about the world in which we live in the end that's coming for the world, and the God who will bring about that end, and what the world truly is, and where the world is truly going, what it will be found out to be. Words about the end shape our perspective now. Jesus compared the day when the world or the city of man will be unmasked for the emptiness that it truly is. He compared that day to the days of Noah. Maybe you remember that passage. You know, Noah was the one who God told was bringing a flood to the earth. And God warned him years and years ahead of time. And, and Noah got started. And Jesus says about those days, he said, In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Friends, the point here is that we can hear and talk about words about the end and just ignore it and refuse to hear it. So we appeal to people. We appeal to ourselves. Put down the distraction and hear words about the end that is coming very soon at any time. It's like you may close your eyes when you're outside and refuse to look at the sun, but that doesn't mean it's not shining. In another place, the Bible says the world is passing away along with its desires. So Christian brother and sister, is this the place where you want to take residence? Is this the place where you want to feel at home? In this world system, Friends, that killed the Son of God when he became a man, that crucified Jesus. You want to know what the world thinks about God? Look at the cross. Words about the end shape our perspective about the world in which we live. Words about the end should bring all of us to ask, where do I belong and where do I want to belong? Now, if you, remember, um, if you remember the Titans, there's a scene from that movie, Remember the Titans. It's toward the beginning of the movie. The story's about two high schools, uh, one predominantly white, one predominantly black. And they're at the beginning of their first year of being an integrated school, one integrated school. And the story's about the football team. The football team is all gathered in the gymnasium. They're set to meet their coach, 
their new head coach for the first time, Coach Boone. Now the coach makes this grand entrance to the gymnasium where all the players off. He gives off a very no-nonsense vibe. Everyone immediately straightens up except one particular player. One particular player is all smiley. He's just so excited. He can't contain it. And so Coach Boone has his eyes centered on this player. He goes right up to him. He says, what are you smiling for? He says, well, because football is fun. You think, we're, you're, you think we're here to have fun? It's like, oh, no, but maybe a little bit. A, a little bit? And he just gets the player to eventually say, no, no, we are here to have zero fun serve. <laughs> and then there's this big reversal. Coach Boone steps back, makes an announcement to the whole team. He says, I'm your new football coach, and I'm here to tell you about how much fun we are going to have this season. We want to be careful, friends, not to have a misconception about God. About God, our King. God is serious. He takes sin seriously. He's removed from evil. He is against it. He holds us accountable for it. But God is not joyless. God is not joyless. The triumph of God's reign bringing his glory, reasserting his rightful place. That will mean sorrow for some, but it will also mean joy beyond anything we've ever known or imagined for his people. Chapters 25 to 27, there's a constant refrain. Just over and over again, Isaiah says, in that day, in that day. In that day refers to God's final ushering in of his rule. That's described in chapter 24. That very end of 24, the end of all history, God reigning in glory on the earth. In chapters 25 to 27, we see all that God will be for his people in that day. The joy of God, of who God is for his people in that day. And that can produce joy in us now, friends. So just to take one chapter at a time here, just the, the big picture of each chapter, 25, 26, and 27, who God will be for us in that day. Chapter 25, we read that in that day, the Lord God Almighty will be his people's host. Will be his people's host. Now we just saw in chapter 24, one party getting shut down. Then we read in chapter 25, of a feast starting up. A way better party than the world could ever throw on its own. Because at this feast, you see, at this feast, death and tears are gone forever. Look at chapter 25, verse 6. Chapter 25, verse 6. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, we noticed before that the world, the earth, is not as it should be. There is a curse over this world because of our sin, our rebellion against God. Here, what it's saying is that won't last forever. The curse that is over the earth right now will be undone. Everything will be as it should be and more. We will celebrate with the King, our God who has done this, so now we say goodbye to the world's binge of a party. But when we say goodbye to the world, we don't end up actually losing anything. Look at all that we gain. 
We gain this feast. We gain God. God. God himself. Life in God's city. Friends, it is not dreary. It is not boring. Not now and especially not then. It is not joyless. Life in God's city is joyful. So God will be our host. Chapter 25. Who God will be for his people in that day. Chapter 26. We read, in that day, we will see that the Lord God Almighty alone is our Savior. That the Lord God Almighty alone is our Savior. Look at chapter 26, verses 12 to 19. It says, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead, they will not live. They are shades, they will not rise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near giving to birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhe, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. But your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth. To its dead. Friends, look closely at these verses. Who is the one who brought peace? Who is the one who delivered them from the earth? Who is the one who raised the dead? Well, verse 12, it's not other lords. Verse 18, it's not themselves. Verse 13, it's God alone. God alone has done all this in the end. Says your name alone we bring to remembrance. The pride of the world, the city of man, the pride of the world is what we can do for ourselves. The pride of the city of God is God. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in this, boast in the Lord. Pride in ourselves will leave us empty because ultimately we will figure out sooner or later that we don't measure up. Pride in ourselves will leave us empty. But boasting in God will fill us forever because God will never, ever run out. So in that day, in that day, the perfect joy we have that we've been longing for our whole lives, the perfect joy we have will not be from what we give to God. No, the perfect joy we will have in that day will be from what God gives to us. His doing, not ours. Who God will be for his people in that day, a host our only Savior. Chapter 27. We read that in that day, God is our conqueror and our defender. In that day, God is our conqueror and defender. I'm just going to read verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Author Flannery O'Connor said that our age has domesticated evil, domesticated despair, and learned to live with it happily. Just gotten used to it. We don't notice it. So much that's hidden. If there's anything the last few years have taught, have taught us, especially if you look at cases like 
Ariel Castro and Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, how much out there, how much evil goes on that we don't know about that's hidden? Just talking to, talk about your neighbors. Talk about each one of us in our past, we have something that we try to hide. When we develop tolerance for what's wrong, we will not appreciate how great the victory is that God will win over evil. When we have a tolerance for what's wrong, we just won't appreciate God's victory over evil. Now, Isaiah, in this verse, he borrows a mythological image from the ancient world. And he does this to describe the evil that's in the world right now, Leviathan. He does this because the evil in the world is worse than human. It's demonic. The devil is the prince of the power of the air of this world. Evil is a monster that riles and twists. And in that day, God will conquer it. God destroys evil and it won't come back. And friends, it will not be hard for him. What are we saying from Martin Luther? A mighty fortress is our God. I think it's the third verse. He says, one little word shall fell him. God, the conqueror of evil. A host, a savior, a conqueror. All that God will be for his people on that day. All that he is for them on that day, he is for them through his son. He's for them through Jesus. Jesus fulfills all this. It's through Jesus' finished work that we enter this feast. That's what we remind ourselves in the Lord's Supper. His body broken for us. His blood shed for us. That allows us to take part in the beautiful bounty of God's presence and allows us to take part of that forever. Jesus' sacrifice is what allows Jesus to say that he looks forward to feasting with us in heaven. All that God is for his people, he is for them through Christ. It's Jesus alone who saves. Acts 4.12, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In that day, our song will be, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is him to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. It's through Jesus God accomplishes all that he will in that day. Through Jesus, God ends death and destroys evil. Through his death on the cross, Hebrews 2.14 says, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death the devil. And united to him, God raises us from the dead. We have that same victory. Romans 6, 5 says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. All that God is for his people, all he will be for his people in that day, he is for them through Christ the Son. And y'all, this is the plan from the beginning. Ephesians 1 says that the Father's plan was to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, in the Son, Jesus. The plan centers on Christ. So we ask ourselves, if we feel the world is as it should be, and if we have our senses about us, we say, no, the world is not as it should be. But from the very first time, it was not as it should be. God has not been out of control. God has had a plan. God has had a plan to make all things right and all things glorious. And you know, we know that plan will finish straight up because Jesus died and rose again. We know he will finish what he has started. So we saw that when the world went wrong, it set up life, all of life is independent from God, kind of summed up in a way of life in a city, 
A way of life living on our own terms. A way of life symbolized by, yes, making a city. But you know, from the very first city that was established, that was set up by man, a symbol of our rebellion, that we can live without God, from the very first city, you know, God had a plan for another city. What he calls the new Jerusalem at the very end of Revelation. So one pastor observes, God takes, listen, God takes the very symbol of our rejection of him and transforms it into heaven. What a redeemer. What a gracious and powerful redeemer who will be our host, our savior, our king forever. Joy in that day. So just reflecting on this sum, we say that this feast with God, the gracious and powerful redeemer, will include all kinds of people. So as we read, continue to read in chapter 27, whether it's verse 6, whether it's verse 13, it will include all kinds of people. So in other words, friends, anyone can get in on this. Anyone. Doesn't matter how bad, doesn't matter how good you think you are, doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, the numbers on your paycheck. Anyone can get in on this. So today, friend, if you are not in on this, all this joy that will come in that day, you can get in on this. Now, we say anyone can get in on this, but there is only one way to get in on this. Jesus is God's chosen one. It is the Father's plan to bring sinners back to himself through his Son. Not through our efforts, not through our values, not through our systems. Through Jesus. The joy of that day will not be because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So friend, if you are not in Jesus, you will not be in on this joy forever. So would you trust Christ alone today for your standing before God, the forgiveness of your sins as entrance into this feast. The gates are open. The gates are open, but they will not stay open forever. Well, brothers and sisters, I wonder if we've forgotten. I wonder if we've forgotten that anyone can get in on this feast because we've forgotten how sweet and joy joyful that day will be. I wonder if we don't want heaven or we don't want God for others because we heartily long for God or heaven ourselves. Maybe that's why we don't want, want it for others. If this is what we will enjoy forever, if God is who, what, who we will enjoy forever, why not get started now? Why not make it our business every day to enjoy the God of our salvation, the God who is bringing us home? I mean, we got one more point in the sermon. It's going to be a, a quick point, I promise you. Um, but right now, thinking about the joy of that day, I wonder, and I, I know the answer is yes because I've talked to several of you throughout this week. I wonder how many of you have felt overwhelmed this week a show of hands wow that's a majority at least half now I'm not advocating that we just simply escape from what overwhelms us and do not deal with it but underneath all that overwhelms us underneath it all there should be an assurance a hope that comes from the joy that God will give us forever Friends, what overwhelms you will not last. It just won't. It has an expiration date. It will not have the last word. Christian, because of Jesus, you know what? You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. We don't think of this joy, do we? It's no wonder that one of Paul's prayers for his fellow Christians is that God would open their hearts so that they would know the hope to which he has called them. Just to think about heaven, Lord. Well, heaven's not here yet. Have you seen Field of Dreams? 
Another one of my favorites. Yes, it's a sports movie. I apologize. You'll remember the scene when the ghost of Shoeless Joe Jackson steps onto this new baseball field this farmer has made. And he asks the farmer, he says, is this heaven? The farmer says, no, it's Iowa. <laughs> Friends, in case you haven't noticed, we are not in heaven. We are still waiting. And so were the people Isaiah was writing to. We said a few times, uh, a few weeks ago, when we saw the importance of patience in, a book of, in the book of James, that waiting in life is inevitable. We could really say that all of life is waiting to some degree. It's waiting for that day to come. So what matters is how we wait. We're not in heaven yet. The world's not as it should be. So what do we do? We're patient, not panicked. Patient, not panicked. When you read these chapters, there's a way Isaiah talks about the future. Whenever he brings up that phrase, in that day, he does so a lot. Whenever he brings up that phrase, in that day, you should pay attention to the kinds of verbs that come after it. Over and over again, he says, in that day, the Lord will. The Lord will. Not in that day, the Lord might. Not in that day, I think the Lord will. Isaiah speaks of the Lord's triumph in that day as something that's certain, something he expects. So people have a misconception about what hope means, that hope is just something that we wish is true. That's not the biblical concept of hope. The biblical concept of hope is what we anticipate and expect is true. So while we wait, we can have this patience like Isaiah because we are certain that the future is what God says it will be. We're certain about the future because we're certain about the past. The world in which we live, the world where half of us in this room raised their hands and said they were overwhelmed in. You know, this world is the world that God the Son entered, took on flesh, and walked through himself. It's the one he died to save and rose again, overcoming it. And it's the one. He is with us now as we walk in this world. We do not have a Savior who is out of touch. The one who's entered into our reality. What Jesus has done in the past makes us certain that he's walking with us now and that he will bring about this glorious day in the future. Because of Jesus, friends, our names are written on the guest list of this feast. We're just waiting for a seat. While we're still here, we can have patience. Heaven's not here yet. Midday's not here yet. We have patience, though, because we're certain about the future. We're certain about the future because we're certain about the past. Not just that, we're certain about our God. Chapter 26, verses 3 to 4. These are really important verses, very powerful verses. I encourage you to look at them. Chapter 26, verses 3 to 4 says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Certain about our God. The New Testament puts it like this, our call to worship. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Patient, not panicked. Peace, not storm. We're certain about the future because we're certain about the past and we're certain about our God. Brothers and sisters, we are in this world together. It is hard. We feel that it's hard. So will we, with the Lord's help, live out this Christ-centered patience every day? Friends, will we give our hearts our all, not to here, not to this world, but to our God. Our all to our God. Isaiah wants the people of Judah to think about the end and what God will do at the end. What God will do in the end should shape how they view the world in which they live now. What God will do in the end should make them anticipate the joy he will bring. What God will do in the end should give them patience.
to keep their eyes fixed on him. Isaiah's burden was Augustine's burden, and it's what's always marked the people of God who wait. We'll close with this, a perspective well summarized by Hebrews chapter 11. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom, your will, not ours. Father, we want to be centered on you, centered on what's to come. Lord, would you enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we may know what is to, the hope to which you are calling us. The riches of our glorious inheritance in Jesus. All that you will be for us on that day. Oh God, thank you. God, what mercy is this? We do not deserve this. This is all from your hand. Would we be thrilled and grateful for your grace every day? Would that give us patience as we still walk on this earth? Please, God, help us walk faithfully looking to you. In Jesus' name, amen.